You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. This epistle, 1 John, a little context, it grew out of the upper room discourse that we studied at length in the Gospel of John. The upper room discourse is the private ministry that Jesus had with the apostles before his betrayal and eventual crucifixion. This is John chapter 14 through 17 where Jesus explained to the apostles what their relationship would look like with God after the Holy Spirit is sent to them. We covered that at length, like I said, and so this is, as a reminder, this is a family letter. This is a family letter to the brothers and sisters in Christ that he is trying what he is trying to uh, accomplish here. So a bit of review. The desire of John in writing this letter is that Christians would know that they are saved. Okay? This is the heart of God through the, the work of John is that we would know we are saved. That we, are, we would know we are saved. I'll keep going. Here we go. The Gospel of John, one commentator wrote, this, the Gospel of John helps us understand how to be saved. Where the letter of John helps us to know if we are saved. This letter of John helps us that our joy may be complete. Over the last couple weeks, as we've dove into these letters of John, we have dove into Jesus as the true Messiah, uh, chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 4. Last week, we talked about what it looks like as followers of Christ to be a a source of light to be someone who is in the light and we are in the light through confession of sin we do this every week at mercy's door as a rhythm as a reminder that we are people who see god rightly and as we see god rightly that light shines into all of the deep dark crevices of your life shining and exposing the sin in your life so what do we do with that sin is we confess our sin The Word teaches us if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Pastor Adam made a great point last week that people of confession of sin, we are a people who confess sin, but a confession of sin is really a confession of faith. Our confession of sin is, in turn, a confession that Jesus has cleansed me. I have no possible way to cleanse myself. Only solely based on the perfect work of Jesus on our behalf, can we be cleansed because he is faithful and just? Okay? It's a bit of review. Steve Lawson, a man I, I, I've loved since I became a Christian, this guy, uh, he, he says it like this, the longer you walk with the Lord, the greater your sensitivity to sin. Why is that? It's because as you grow closer to Jesus, who is the light, the light is placed on something. When any time light is placed on something, what happens? It becomes more clear. What you see becomes more visual, right? And it isn't it interesting that there's no such thing, nothing in the world creates physical darkness. Physical darkness is only the absence of light. Where darkness is, the only reason that darkness is there is because light is not there. I think there's a spiritual parallel in that. So we spoke about walking in the light last week as a follower of Christ, meant to, be, meant to be a life bringing your sin into the light. 
as you walk with the Lord, the light exposes how we have fallen short. So what do we do with that? We bring it unto Him. We confess it. We agree with Him that we have fallen short. And He takes it. So, several terms. I want to be very, very clear as we set this up today. There are, there are several terms in this epistle that John uses synonymously. I want to bring clarity to this. He talks about fellowship with God. He talks about knowing God. He talks about abiding in God and seeing God. These are used to describe the experience as Christians. People who have Jesus Christ in them. They are new. They are born again. They've given their life to Christ. All those terms. The follower of Christ experiences God in these ways. They all describe a relationship to varying degrees of intimacy. John wants to motivate his readers to cultivate greater intimacy with God. He, he's giving us this letter so that we would know we are His. That we would know we are in Christ. And in Christ, that our relationship with Him would be a deep, intimate well of joy found in Him. He intends this just like we hear... Um, Jesus' voice in John chapter 10, verse 10, right? He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and life abundant. This is the heart of John as well in this text. And isn't it, isn't it easy to have just a mediocre or ordinary relationship with God? That's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of John that we read in this text. So as we begin, I need every eye on me. I need to be very, very clear. The basis, the confidence, the hope that we, that you, that we have for salvation has nothing to do with you. Has nothing to do with what you have done. It has nothing to do with what you are doing. And it has nothing, it will have nothing to do with you, what, what, with what you do in the future. Your salvation, your confidence should be based nothing on you, but is fully and completely found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? amen. Let's get an amen going in here, okay? All right? Everything, our hope, our eternal security is not based on you. That is praiseworthy, right? Amen. This is the gospel. So let that be the foundation with which we read these next few verses. And John does an absolutely fantastic job here bringing that to greater light. If you're a note taker, I've got three points. Advocacy, clarity, supremacy. We're going to look at the advocacy of Jesus in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at how John brings clarity to the life of a Christian walking, in deeper, walking into deeper and deeper intimacy with Christ in verses 3 through the first part of verse 5. And then we'll look at the supreme example of how to live the Christian life in Christ in verses, the last part of verse 5 to verse 6. And we'll jump in. Verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an, say it with me, 
advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the, say it with me, whole world. This passage is the reflection of John 3.16 in verses in 1 John here. This is a deeply profound passage of Scripture that Christians have spent their lives studying and communicating. Tens of thousands of books have been, tried to writ, have been written to try to encapsulate what this means and what this understands. Theologians and commentaries and all kinds of things are here to understand what we just read in verses 1 and verses 2. Christ is our advocate and Christ is our propitiation for the whole world. What does that mean? He starts off by saying, it's better not to sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate. Right out of the gate, we got a doozy, don't we? Yeah? Right out of the gate. He says that you may not sin. What does this not mean? What it does not mean is that that you may never sin again. So don't hear what he's not writing. Okay? He's talking about the life the dependency on Christ that there's going to be sin. And just think of your experience. Think of your experience this morning. In Christ, this morning, brothers and sisters, found by, washed by the blood of Christ. Did you sin this morning? Probably. Did you sin this week? Yeah, probably. Right? So how can that be? How can that be that if there's light living inside of us, how, how is the existence of sin? Well, as he exposes the sin, this is because we have not yet been glorified. The presence of sin is still with us, but the power and the penalty has been washed new by the blood of Christ. We live in this already but not yet world where we have not yet seen the eradication of sin. His presence is still here. He does this that you, Dr. Lawson says this again. I love this. He says, This passage talks about the direction, not the perfection of your life. The direction of your life is one that is marked by holiness into and unto Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, not based off of your perfection of your life. There was only one perfect man who lived sinlessly, right? And thankfully, he is our advocate as we will will read the direction of our lives ought to look like more light shining because in Him, in Jesus, He is the light and He is alive in me. I think it's interesting that John first starts off this chapter with a warning. He doesn't want us to be too lenient with sin. He doesn't want us to tolerate sin. He says, it's better that you don't sin. Let that be very clear. Sin is not good. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But he also gives us a word that we ought not be too harsh about our sin. Because us trying to reach God, attain God by something of our own merit will only lead to either idol creation or destruction. Because we don't measure up. You can't measure up. You will never measure up. And in that, don't hear discouragement. Hear freedom. Hear freedom that there is one that has taken your place, that does measure up, that does fit the mold, who's done it and walked it and lived it for you. 
So if anyone does sin, this is where we get into the meat of this mamma jamma right here. Advocate. What is an advocate? This is a word we hear often in our in our culture, in our society today, we have people who, in the realm of adoption where we advocate for children. We, people advocate for unborn children. We, we have power of attorneys who advocate for the sick and dying on our behalf. We have people, representatives, who advocate for the people in, the, in government. Right? We understand what this means. NIV, the NIV version says of this verse, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. I like that. This is great truth because we know Jesus is, what does it say at the end of that sentence? Jesus is the righteous one. He is Jesus the righteous. So we know we have someone pleading on our behalf, and it isn't just someone. It's the righteous one. So he's pleading on our behalf perfectly. This is also very good news. We don't have to worry about his, if he's up and down this week. If he's going to come to the Father really good for me or not. Because he's the righteous one. He's the perfect one to have the ear of God. This theologian, I'm sorry, let me, let me get into this thought here as I was reading some cross-references in this text. It says, Jesus used the word advocate four times in the upper room when he is with the apostles teaching them what it meant to have a helper come on their behalf. He's using this term four times in the upper room, and he uses it here, and it's the only time it's ever used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's pretty clear that what John is trying to help us understand is that we have someone who speaks to God for us. Okay, I think that's a pretty interesting fact. Now, a theologian out of Dallas Theological Seminary, his name's Vernon McGee. This man died the year that I was born, but he has this wisdom to say on this. He says, the Holy Spirit is our comforter down here, and Christ is our comforter up there. I love that simplicity, right? We have a great comforter here in the Holy Spirit that has been given us to help us walk in obedience. And up there, at the right hand of the throne of God, we have a great high priest who is right now speaking on our behalf. This is great comfort. I remember working, uh, before I was here at Mercy's Door, I was a, a teacher at the university in another country, and there was this one uh, position that um, uh, they had filled, the university had filled, and it was called an FAO. The FAO was called the Foreign Affairs Officer. Now, I did everything in my power to gain a relationship with her and her son. I was helping her son learn English. As she and getting, building a relationship with her and her with my team. I did this because in a country that I had very little say, I had very little rights, I had very little freedoms compared to what we have here and so much of me and the team that I was leading so much of what I counted on was that she would go to bat for me she would have my best interest in mind and my team's best interest in mind but at the end of the day it was in her hands 
A lot of the decisions about when and where and who and where we were going as a team teaching, what, what classes, how big our classes were, all of these things that were supposed to be negotiable, I had trust, I had to put my trust in her that she would deliver. I had to put my trust in her that her, she would have my best interest in mind. Now, this is the good news of the gospel. The best person has you in mind (laughs) the best person to have the ear of god has it on your behalf this is good the now the now late tim keller he said that like this the central basis of christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on god but how unshakably his heart is set on us amen Amen. With an exhale, right? Oh, praise God. So he says, we have an advocate. He is the propitiation for our sin. What a deep word. This word, tens of thousands of books have been written about and what it means to be the propitiation for sin. The word propitiation, the verb propitiation, it is the action of appeasing God. It's the action of appeasing God in its simplest terms. If we talk about another verse, you might see in another, if you have another version of the Bible, you might see atonement. This is a similar thing. I think propitiation has a a more full, a deeper understanding uh, of what we're talking about. But atonement, really just at one meant. Jesus provides a way for us to be one with God. So this is interesting, is that he not only is our perfect advocate, Defending us, having the ear of God on our behalf, just like a great high priest would. The high priest of the Old Testament would go on the people's behalf into the holies of holies and make atonement for them by sacrificing animals, by having sacrifices for the remission of sins, right? Jesus is our great high priest, advocating on our behalf. But what it means for him to be the propitiation is he not only advocates, but he himself is the sacrifice atoning for sin. He was the lamb slain in the Holy of Holies on our behalf. This is what it means to appease the wrath of God. God's holiness demands punishment for sin. And therefore, out of love, God sent Jesus as a substitute on our behalf. Where there is sin, there must be shed blood. And this, even though it's ugly and dark, it's good. It's good news. It's good news that God is wrathful against sin. Just like if you would walk into a courtroom and if there was an evil or a corrupt judge presiding over you, that would not be good news for you. But if that judge is just, that's a good thing. For all parties to hate sin, to hate what is evil, that is good. And His holiness demands punishment for sin. So we'll get into a little bit of gospel fluency here. Get into a little bit of what it means for this. When we forget Jesus' work on the cross, what we are forgetting is that God's wrath is satisfied. When we forget Jesus' work on the cross, we forget that Christ has fulfilled 
God's judgment. He has fulfilled the law. He has quenched the thirst of God's wrath poured out on sin. That's why it's so important that we remember the cross. We, we preach the cross. We don't just preach grace, but we, we preach the cross is grace. The cross is grace because we know that God's wrath is satisfied. Has anyone ever heard the name of, uh, I, I, my, we have some Schmitz in here, um, but there's a man, I got a picture of him. This guy, is, his name's Kevin Schmidt, okay? Steel blue gaze right there at those eyes. Kevin Schmidt, he lives in South Dakota, okay? Every six months, Kevin climbs the top, to the top of this communication tower to change a light bulb. The tower, go ahead and hit the next one. He climbs all the way to the top to change this bulb of this tower. The tower is 1,500 feet high. He does this in every season. He does this at sometimes winds of 60 miles per hour. He changes this light bulbs. Go ahead and hit the next one. At that height, you see him at the very tippy top there. At that height, yes, yeah, some of you are like, ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> at that height, he is doing this so that pilots will see and avoid it, obviously preventing a potential catastrophe, right? This takes him roughly two, two and a half hours to go up, change a light bulb, and about an hour and an hour and a half down. At the end of this work, he gets $20,000. Okay, now, why do I share this story? How, don't move to South Dakota, okay? For, <laughs> I share this story because the risk that this man is willing to endure to change a light bulb to make sure that those flying don't get hurt is rewarded. The great risk that he is willing to endure, he's rewarded for it. Jesus, our propitiation, he is rewarded greatly. But what does he do with that reward? He gives it to us. On our behalf, the risk of God's wrath, the risk of God turning his back on him, at that risk, it happens. And as it happens, he is rewarded by now sitting at the throne of God, but making propitiation for our sins. Unlike the light bulb needing to be changed every six months or so, Jesus' work as a sacrificial substitute is once and for all. It's once and for all. There's no need of a, you know, set up a re reoccurring payment for sin. There's no need for that. It is satisfied. That's why Jesus at the cross, what does he say? It is finished. It's finished. Adam said, said it last week. There isn't punishment twice. God did a full accounting of our sin. And Paul, Tripp, says it like this. It is finished means you are forever freed from having to add anything to what Jesus has done on your behalf. Amen. He has no, you have nothing to add. This is the context in which John is laying out the fir, first John, this chapter, and this book. 
But we have no clue of the wrath of God poured out for sin. We have no experience. We have no way to, no metric to explain or uh, express when it says it is finished. As finite beings, we have, when we start thinking of eternity, our minds can kind of go to mush, right? We have no concept for what it means that God has his full eternal wrath, the weight of sin, is finished in Christ. This is phenomenal news for us in Christ because it is no longer us who received the punishment of God, but it was poured out on Jesus. Propitiation, advocate. But this should burden our hearts for those who don't abide in the vine, who don't have Christ, who don't have the light of the world living in them, that this eternal wrath that God has as judge will come due. This is the heart of evangelism. This is the heart of evangelism. And when we, we might have unbelief, we have unbelief that Jesus truly finished the work, right? If we're honest, sometimes, you might not say that, you might not ascend to that mentally, but sometimes the way we act proves that we don't believe that his work was final. So some of the ways um, I hear that play out, play out often as people that hear from you, hear from my GC, hear from other people, uh, they want to talk about God. What I hear from them is anytime we feel we need to earn favor with God, anytime um, like I would come into greater standing with God, it's almost like we're, we're spiritual teacher's pets, right? And we want to do right because ultimately we want, we want the teacher, we want, the, we want God to see us do what's right. So that he'll pat us on our head and send us on our way. Oh, good, good. What we do when we're doing that is we are robbing Jesus of the glory of his work. We're saying, okay, yeah, that was good. We, we, it's like we believe that God gives us a mulligan, a, a second chance, a do-over, but now it's up to us. That's so false. The same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that's alive in you today, bringing sin to your mind so that you may confess it and it would become it would come into light. There's no such thing. Here's another. I hear this a lot. Oh, I had this. I had this uncle or this pastor or, or this one uh, shepherdess. Or I had this one person in my life, and they're just a great Christian man. They're just a, a good, a devout follower. She was just a devout follower of Jesus, just a good Christian. I hear that a lot. Let me tell you, in your eyes, if they are a good Christian, it's because they clung tightly into the arms of their Redeemer. The reason anyone is good is because they are near to Jesus. One of my favorite passages in Acts, when Peter is being accused in the Sanhedrin, it's like they say, they noticed that they were ordinary, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. The reason anyone that you, a mentor of yours, that you think is a, a good Christian man or a good Christian woman is because they are wrapped up in the arms of Jesus. And in almost another way we have unbelief that Christ finished the work is almost in a narcissistic or in a cynical way we feel like, oh, this is so good, but it's almost too good to be true. That this, this work is finished once and for all. Or that Jesus may even be, you ever get the, th maybe you feel, 
Jesus has got to be tired of dealing with my junk. You feel that sometimes? Like, I come to him with the same thing over and over again. I confess the same thing over and over again. He's got to be tired of it. It's got to be running dry. That's a lie. Because he finished the work. If he didn't finish the work, what are we doing here? But because he finished it once and for all, that nonsense has got to go away. And I understand that that's how the world operates. If you don't do the right thing at work over and over and over and over again, you probably won't have that job. If you mess up in a relationship over and over and over and over and over and over again, that relationship won't, probably won't be there much longer. Pain and hurt, right? The world, worldly standards, that makes total sense. We're not talking about worldly standards. We're talking about heavenly, spiritual standards that Jesus has accomplished for us. So church, renew your mind. Renew your mind. Don't believe that lie. When you believe this is too good to be true, when you believe he's got to be sick of pleading on my behalf, you are believing that it is not finished. It's finished. So, we rejoice in the work of Christ new every day. That's true because His mercies are new every morning. But that doesn't mean He needs to finish the work again. We rejoice because His mercies are new, but the work is done. Amen. He does this for the whole world. We're still in verse 2, y'all. Alright, I'm going to have to speed up. Jeepers. Whole world. What does this mean? Maybe it'd be best to start off by saying what it doesn't mean. This is not a statement of a heresy called universalism. Some uh, in our culture believe that eventually all believers, I'm sorry, eventually all people in the world will be saved. This is a heresy denying the work and person. This is robbing Jesus of glory on the cross. Sin had to be paid for. God is not going to look the other way on sin. And thankfully, he doesn't. But he pours it out all on Christ. But John's point, which I believe adds support to John 3.16, God so loved the world, right? John is understanding, his understanding in this text is that this, that God is not an, a partial God. He doesn't show partiality. But this gospel, this truth, this word of Jesus is an advocate and Jesus is a propitiation, it is applicable for the whole world, that not just one people group, it is for all tribes, all tongues, all nations, that Jesus saves. This is the word, this is the heart, like I said, of evangelism. One commentator said that the gospel has worldwide application. So unique, it has personal, intrinsic application every day as we wash ourselves new with the gospel. But then it also has worldwide application, that the far corners of the earth will be saved in Christ by hearing the good news that he's an advocate, he's taken away sins. So, we have to remember this context, what John is understanding, that it is finished. He wants us to be sure of this as we walk into verses 3 and on. Verse 3, And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. The word know is used over 40 times in this letter alone, and it is used for the assurance of the believer. John is seeking to bring clarity to this and certainty to believers in Christ. And it does not mean only that they are, I'm sorry, it does not mean only those who never disobey know God. We cleared that up. We're not talking about the perfection of our life, but the direction of our life. It, he's assuming that as light shines, Light will do its thing. As light shines, darkness vacates. So proof that we know we are in Christ is that your life is becoming more apparent. More light is shining in your life. I have this story that I tell all the girls when I'm talk, trying to, all my kids, but the girls right now, they're at an age, you know what I mean? Um, I always say when we're talking about consequences, you know, reaper, you know what, what happens when we do things. And I say, what happens when you jump in a pool? You get wet. You get wet. It, there's no need if you're in a pool to be like, hey, hey, give me that bucket of water. I need to get wet. Fill that bucket up with water and pour it on me. I need to get wet. That doesn't make sense. You're already wet. You're in the water. Right? We're in the water of the grace of Jesus. Right? There's my corny uh, Christian saying right there. We are in the pool of God's forgiveness and grace if we have taking the jump of, of surrendering life to Jesus. Surrendering our life to Him. And this is what John is bringing clarity to. Now, commandments. What does this mean? I almost could guarantee when we say commandments, something negative pops into your mind. We think of commandments in understanding our military culture. Commands might mean different things to different people here. You know, for those who are in the military or have a military background who are affected by commands, your command telling you, go move across the world or move here or do this, do that, right? You might not like the outcome of that command. And legitimately, because there's bigger things at play, the commands that you must obey might not have your best interest in mind. They might not have your family's interest in mind. I was talking to some people setting up the other day, and we were talking about uh, you know, marriage and wedding and stuff in the military, and, and someone uh, joked, I won't name him, he goes, well, you know, if the Air Force wanted you to have a wife, they'd have, they'd have issued, issued you one, you know? But it's like when we think of commands, we have a negative context. Lost my spot. And this is not a knock on our military. There's something in our mind ingrained when something puts restrictions on us, it's like, you don't want me to live my best life. What's going on here? Why can't I do what I want to do whenever I want to do it? I would like to reclaim this in our understanding of commands. Steve Lawson says this, Every commandment points us into the very epicenter of the will of God, the goodness of God, and the kindness of God. I heard someone say at a conference one time, if you're talking about the obedience to the commands of God, almost likening it to the law of gravity. And let's say we're up, you're up on your roof and you, you fall off of your roof. You aren't breaking the law of gravity, you're breaking yourself. 
the law of gravity is there. The law of God is there for our goodness because we, as we understand the character of God, what does John 10.10 say? It is here for life abundantly. Church, I want us to reclaim, when, whenever you think of commands, when you see commands or obedience in the Word, we have to understand that this is good because our God is good. And he, he asks us to do things or he tells us not to do things because it is for our fullness. Therefore, if obedience is for our good, disobedience is not good. It's not for our good. I love Pastor Michael used an example um, when talking about sin. He said, we believe sin to be like a fire. That if you get at just the right distance from that fire, it's nice. It'll keep you warm. Endorphins, right? But if you get too close, it'll burn you, right? A great lie the evil one would have us believe is that our sin really isn't a big deal. The reality of sin is like, as Pastor Michael puts it, it's like radiation. It's not a fire. It's radiation, and where the presence of radiation is, your sins, your, your, your cells on a, are dying. There's decay when you are in radiation, is death, and where there is sin, there's death. But thanks be to God that he has overcome sin at the cross once and for all. So we have the ability, again, let's not take this out of context, our will to obey is not to garner favor with the Lord, but our will, the ability to obey, is through the Spirit who is alive and finishing the task set out. Philippians 1.16, I'm sorry, 1.6, I'm sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Whoever says, I'm going to clip through this, whoever says, I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is echoes of Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus is saying to me, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does will, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is towards the end of the Sermon of the Mount that Jesus is sharing this. He just went off explaining what judging others was like. He talked about the golden rule, and he talked about knowing a tree by its fruit. Then this passage comes up here in 1 John. So is Jesus suggesting a works-based salvation? No, he is not. They're in no way, shape, or form. What he's talking about is intimacy of the believer, intimacy of the follower. I'm married to the lovely Cat Barton. Been married for 13 years. We've been married, and this has changed everything about my life. Every relationship that I have with every other woman on the planet changed the moment I said I do. In our marriage, I've learned a great many things when it comes to the way she prefers things to do. Okay? And likewise, vice versa. I'm the more particular one. But because I love her and I care about her and I desire to please her, I often try to do the things that make her happy, that serve her, that bless and honor her. If those things weren't present, that doesn't make us any less married. If she asks me a dozen times to take out the trash, 
take the kids to school, pick up something at the store, and I fail to do them over and over and over again, I'm not less married, but we could have a bit of a broken fellowship going on. Right? The level of emotional intimacy could be broken because she doesn't know if she can trust me. Now, we're talking about worldly relationships, not a perfect relationship with the Father. But, although we might have broken fellowship, she might not be able to, I asked him to do this, but he didn't do it. You know, This doesn't change the fact that we're still married. Even if we're angry at each other, if we have an argument, we're still married. We still have a relationship. But, our relationship might be fractured. What does it take? What does it take for that relationship to be restored? Confession. I come to light, you know, honey, I'm so sorry. I've been totally blowing it, taking the trash out, getting the kid, taking the stuff up to school. You have every right not to trust me. You forgive me? Yes, I do forgive you, son, or husband. (laughs) It works for children as well. (laughs) The same analogy could be true of kids. My kids' fellowship with me or their mom isn't perfect, but it's also never non-existent. They're always my kids. I try to tell them every day, no matter if you're, you obey me or you're a good boy or a bad, bad boy, good girl or a bad girl, it doesn't change how I feel about you. And the only reason why I can say that is because God says that about us. My uh, Kane, the band Kane, they have this song called uh, I'm Blessed. And uh, it says, on my best day, I'm a child of God. On my worst day, I'm a child of God. That's true for us as well. But there is a sweet spot where we're trying to outdo in, in our relationship, in our marriage. There's a sweet spot where we're trying to outdo one another in honor and service. Honor and service. Almost a sense of, I can't wait to bless her because I know she's had a long day and I know things are, might be stressful at the hospital. And I, I long to make her smile. I long to bless her. But this is out of love. I do this to meet the need. It's never to make us married. It's never to make us married again. Why? She has my heart. My wife has my heart, and I long to bless her. You see, I think often when we we get it mixed up with the work of Jesus, Jesus has done the work, but we just have a mediocre love of God. Our love for the Lord is just stale. You know what? There's good news. Repent. Confess that. And He is faithful and just to take you off autopilot. He's faithful and just to stir it up, get you out of the rut that you might be in. God's love is perfect. It needs nothing to become perfect. It is perfect as is, yet it is perfected in us by obedience to His commands through the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm finishing up. Verse 5 and 6 there at the end. We're talking about the supremacy By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. God has provided a pattern for the life of fellowship, and that pattern is Jesus Christ. His words and His deeds were a revelation of God's love. 
Just last week, I had the opportunity to officiate another wedding. It was the wedding of my cousin. And here we go. Hey, make sure it doesn't fall on me. It's getting warm in here. Um, at this wedding, at weddings, whenever the liturgy, I, I love to bring about and help them understand as a husband and a wife, we look at the picture of Jesus as the groom and the bride is the church and we are the church and he is our, the head of our church. And so I use this as an example to lay out the picture of marriage. You guys have been to a wedding. And so I share this, but I share, so Jesus is the example of what marriage should look like, laying down his life for the betterment of his bride. But not only is he the example, but he is the power by which you can live life together. He is our example. And this example is because of his supremacy. He is the best possible example to follow Jesus is supreme this is the beauty of the incarnation and dwelling of the spirit within us is that that picture of Jesus is the high priest but he's also the lamb on the holy of holies being slaughtered on our behalf he did it perfect Jesus walked in obedience to the will of the father by the power of the holy spirit and I want that to be my and our desire as well. Conclusion. Here we go. Remember the context. Remember the order of events of the good news of Jesus and be encouraged, dear saints. Think about it. Before Adam and Eve were sent out, what did God do? He didn't wait for them to get it figured out. God provided the first sacrifice to cover them and clothe them. An act of grace when God, there were only two. God could have easily started over. But he was gracious. Remember the Passover. The destroyer did not look into the homes that were covered by the blood. It didn't peer in and look. They got things in order in here? Are they living perfect lives in here? No. No. The destroyer angel looked if there was blood on the doorposts. Remember the rescue of the Israelites out of Egypt. God, when does he give his commands to obey? At the beginning? As, he's, as the exodus happens? No. He rescues them out of slavery through the Red Sea into the Promised Land before he lays out the commands to obey. It's not a an achievement of obedience to get them rescued. No. And remember, Jesus came into the world when things were not great. He didn't wait until things got sorted out to enter in. And remember Romans 5.8. He demonstrates His love yet again while you and I were sinning. Christ died. As we think about obedience, as we think about following into deeper levels of intimacy with God. You must remember that it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the work of Christ on your behalf. But it just makes sense. As light is shown, darkness leaves. I want to end with this encouragement from the Jesus Storybook Bible. We read this at night to the kids. This chapter is entitled, Finished. That would be fitting today. 
Jesus, before he died, he shouted from the cross, it's finished. What was finished? Jesus was saying, everything you need to come back home to God, everything you need to be free and happy in God, everything you need to live forever, I've done it all. It wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a shout of mercy, a shout of victory. The great work of rescuing us was finished. There is now nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make him love you less. This is the encouragement that John wants to leave us with as we look at Jesus as our advocate and our propitiation. Let's pray.